Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Alison Stockham about her psychological suspense novel, The Cuckoo Sister. Alison lives in Cambridge with her husband and two daughters and is the events coordinator for the Cambridge Literary Festival. She's previously worked in TV documentary production for the BBC and Channel 4 and in 2020, Alison was longlisted for the Lucy Cavendish Fiction Prize. In this episode, we discuss how her novel sisters represent two sides of motherhood, when Alison realised she was writing in a way that wasn't working for her, and creating an ending that divides opinion. But first, here's Alison with an excerpt from The Cuckoo Sister. It had been an awful day, full of tantrums and tears. Everyone was tired. Everyone needed it to be bedtime. Trying to make a decent dinner and being distracted by the children... Maggie had brought two bouncy balls into the kitchen, a way of keeping the children close and entertained while she got their tea ready. Now, with hindsight, crystal clear in the blackness of the evening, Maggie scoffed at herself, remembering feeling a rare success. She'd solved the need to be in two places at once dilemma. Clever her. If she had been able to look at the scene from the outside, then maybe she would have seen it coming. She might have been able to visualise just what might go wrong. But, in the middle of it all, it didn't even cross her mind. This is what would haunt her all her days from this one forward. She hadn't even considered it. Maggie walked, with no real direction, just wanting to move to know that she could. Her feet felt heavy, her legs as though she were wading through thick mud, her body pushing her onwards, her mind pulling her back. She felt utterly conflicted, what to do, where to go... Images were coming at her thick and fast now that she was alone with no distraction for her brain. It was busy outside A&E, the hustle and bustle of people coming and going, ambulances arriving, a revolving door of life-changing moments going on around her. She had to get away, to get some peace so that she could think straight. She walked into the darkness of the hospital site, towards the office buildings in front of her, and away along the road. Now she was alone, her shadow from the streetlight her only companion. She leant on its lamppost for balance as she saw herself picking up the pan of pasta and taking it to the sink. One of the balls that the children had been playing with had been abandoned, 
and it sat unnoticed until the exact moment Maggie stood on it. It rolled away, she lost her footing, and in trying to right herself, she dropped the pan. Everything slowed down, but only enough for Maggie to be able to see the horrific thing that was going to happen. Not enough time to do anything to stop it. Hi, Alison. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, The Cuckoo Sister. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited. This is a great podcast and I've listened to some of the other shows and it's always really interesting to hear about people's debuts. Thanks, Alison. Can you start then by telling us about your debut, The Cuckoo Sister? Tell us what it's about. Introduce it for us. Okay, well, The Cuckoo Sister is about two sisters, Maggie and Rose. Now, Maggie has two young children and is struggling with the demands that that's placing on her um, and is struggling with her mental health. And then one day there is an accident that uh, ends up with the children in A&E and that's one thing too far for Maggie and she cracks and walks away from her family, um, leaving her sister Rose to pick up the pieces. And the problem comes when Rose picks up the pieces a little too well. Yes, she does indeed. Mm-hmm. where did the inspiration come from then for this novel and I wondered whether it's always been this kind of family drama with an edge of psychological suspense it's always been the kind of novel you wanted to write or did you did you feel like you know you, you landed in this genre um, by accident how did it work so the inspiration for the book came from sort of three places really because I was working on the idea of somebody who stole somebody else's life. And I've got about 20,000 words of a book based on that idea that didn't really work. I couldn't work out where it was going or why they were doing it. There was just, there was something missing and I couldn't work out what it was. So I put that to one side. And then I was working on another book where somebody ran away from their life and I had the same problem. And I couldn't work out where to go or why they'd gone or what they were doing when they were there. And I distinctly remember the moment cycling over the bridge um, here in Cambridge to meet some writer friends for coffee. And it hit me that they were the two halves of the same story. One of those kind of light bulb moments. And I was like, oh, okay. The reason that neither of those books works is because they're only half the book. So I put those two sides together. I was trying to work out what to do with that. Um, And then I had uh, my first daughter and everything paused. Um, and then I had another daughter and I was looking at the sister relationship and I, I don't have a sister. I have a brother, but I'm surrounded by people who are sisters or have sisters. So my brother has two sisters. So my, my husband has two sisters. My um, brother is married to a sister who has a twin and another sister. My mom has a sister. My aunt was one of, uh, my grandma was one of four. And looking at my daughters and, and looking at that sister, sister dynamic, which seems really different to the dynamic to brothers and I thought what if I introduced that element into it what if the two halves of these stories were represented by a pair of sisters and then once I had those three points it all kind of fell into place um and the kind of books that I wanted to write I guess with this one um it was really the story that came to me and that story happens to sit in the kind of family drama psychological thriller area but I think possibly because I just find people and relationships and why people do what they do really interesting and then if you take what people do and push it to the extreme 
then it gets really interesting. And I think I think basically I'm just nosy and a psychological thriller family drama sits really well with that, with that, because I'm always asking why people are doing what they're doing and what made them do it and what would happen if we did this. Yeah, that I mean that makes the perfect recipe for a writer right there. Yeah. <laughs> nosy and overly dramatic. That sounds about right for me. <laughs> Am I to take from this then that you've got loads of stuff like half written, half finished novels somewhere on your computer? Are you someone that has kind of been scribbling away forever? Or was this your very first attempt at writing a novel? It's a bit of both um, in that it's the first book I ever finished. So I have lots of ideas and half finished books, but I never, I never finished anything. And actually that's because I was writing in a way that didn't work for me. And it was only when I did um, NaNoWriMo in 2019, was it 2018, um, that I realized I was writing in the way that didn't work for me. Because I had always been an edit-as-you-go writer, tweaking it, trying to make it perfect. And I would write myself into a corner or I would convince myself that it was terrible and I would lose the love for the idea and then it would it was gone but having to write 50,000 words in a month meant that there's no time for all that thinking you just have to get it down so I'd written the 50,000 words in November and I thought what if I just keep going that's like half a book so I kept on going like that with this incredibly dirty first draft um and then at the end of of the period I, I had a book and I'd never done that before and obviously it was terrible because you can't write 50,000 words. Well, I can't write 50,000 words in a month and have them be all be good ones. So there was a lot of editing. I lost the first 30,000 um, from the beginning. And then even further down in, in the edits, I lost the first chapter and then and then uh, combined the one and two into a new first chapter. But it turns out that I need to write a very rough first draft and then see what I've got Um so although, yeah, it wasn't my first attempt at writing a book, it was the first time I ever actually finished it. Mm. Um, I'm going to delve back into your writing routine later because it sounds fascinating. I'm a big advocate of NaNoWriMo. I've done it twice. I would love to. I, I started it again in 2021, I think. I tried and failed. Um, but I'd love to do it again sometime because I'm exactly, I have exactly your problem, your previous problem, which is I'm a, I'm a perfectionist, editor-as-you-go person. It never works. Because like you say, you always end up, you know, fiddling with the sentence that you're probably going to lose on the edit anyway. So what is the point? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And it was great because it kind of gave me permission to do it as well. Mm. Because writing always feels a little bit extravagant, particularly when you're not contracted to anything. Um, So saying you're doing it for a thing, just for a month, it's for a thing. um, It it gave me permission to prioritise my writing, but also to find out where I had time. And I had time in places I wouldn't have imagined I would have had time. I wrote bits of this book all over the place, like outside swimming lessons. I took my laptop to my book group and sat in the car for 10 minutes beforehand, finishing a chapter. All those pockets of time that actually, if you put them together, really do add up. Mm, Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit more about the characters in your novel, because your sisters in the book, Rose and Maggie, they behave quite surprisingly, I guess, to outsiders. But obviously... When we're reading the book, we're privy to all their inner thoughts and what's going on, the kind of psychology behind their actions. What kind of work did you do to kind of get into their heads? And and I think, I guess, for a book like this, when you're following 
characters very closely and they're doing things that perhaps um, are out of the ordinary or are surprising to their family members you have to know them really really well so how did you get into their heads that's a great question um I guess the thing for me is that Maggie and Rose almost represent the two halves of motherhood um so you have people telling you that motherhood is the best thing you'll ever do I once had somebody tell me that nothing else I ever did in my life would was worth anything in comparison to having children um and I was like well I respect that as your choice for you but actually I'd quite like to do things as well as have children like everything I think that you do in life if it matters to you has value but um no she's like no no the only thing that matters is having children it's the best thing you'll ever do it's the most amazing thing you'll ever do and then you have particularly more recently people saying it's the hardest thing you'll ever do you have people telling you how awful it is how you'll never sleep how you'll never get to do this and um so I kind of took each sister as, as almost a representative of those two sides of motherhood um and to get into that into their heads in a way that you know one of them thought that it was the only thing worth anything and therefore would push everything out of her way in order to achieve it and the other one who um felt that it was everything she needed to get away from um and then again push that to the extreme like what would you do if genuinely having children was the only thing that you thought mattered and what would you do if it was the only thing you thought you wanted to get away from um and then it was just a combination of, of taking my experience as being a parent, my friend's experience of parenthood, you know, reading up on articles from other people's experience of it, looking at the sister dynamic. That's my toy. I want it. Looking at the um, looking at the dynamics of, of sisters really helped as well. So I was thinking about the, the Williams sisters in tennis, how it almost felt, you know, Venus paved the way um, and then Serena took over um, and just yeah that, that dynamic um combined with these kind of two sides of, of motherhood to kind of come up with a black and white way of looking at it and then make it a bit grayer with the plot because mm. obviously nothing is ever black or white yeah that's one thing I wanted to ask about actually because I'm not going to give anything away and so hard talking about books like yours yeah. <laughs> I mean there's so many things that we could talk about but I don't want to spoil anything for anyone who wants to pick it up but both your women are really empathetic and we certainly I think it's very difficult to come you know you, I'm not going to give away the ending obviously but you get to the end and I feel like it's a satisfying end you're not villainizing anyone there's no real kind of enemy it there are areas of gray like you said have you had a kind of strong I mean I looked on your Amazon page yesterday you had an insane number of reviews congratulations but have you had kind of strong reader opinions to these women like have you had people kind of pick sides or has it been oh absolutely really okay absolutely and to be honest one of the reasons I love the story is because it does create such a discussion and I really wanted the reader to be team Maggie team Rose no team Maggie no team Rose oh no wait hang on um both of them neither of them both of them neither of them um because you get to see the experience from both sides of the sisters in the book I want I want the readers to kind of really feel for both of them but also not because basically they're both good people who make bad decisions or bad people who do good things because that's humanity no one's perfect no one's evil everyone's somewhere on the scale of, of the balance between the two 
But yes, very strong readers. People either love the ending or they hate the ending or they're absolutely team one or absolutely team the other. Um, so, I mean, for me, it's just great to see people engaging with the characters and having a, a, a an emotional response to them. Mm. Well, you can put me down. I thought the ending was spot on. So you can put me down as one of those. Don't Thank you. Because I actually struggled. Well, I, I liked the ending and I questioned it because I knew some people were going to be like not not impressed with with what happened at the end and I wrote the alternative ending to see what I thought and uh no I can stand by it I went back to the original yeah. I was like no yeah. no that's that's my ending I don't know Sorry people who don't like it I have to set up some system like if you don't like the ending pay a fee and you can read the alternative <laughs> <laughs> what's interesting is like some people have contacted me said oh um, I struggle to read a book without knowing if it's a happy ending. Is it a happy ending? And I was like, well, that really depends on your opinion. Absolutely. Like, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. <laughs> and it would depend on how you interpreted all the events and, and the characters. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. no simple. I think that's what I enjoy about an ending. Endings that are too neat, I think, sometimes yeah. put me off because just like you say, it's not it's not life. And this, this was a surprising ending, but a, a satisfying one, I thought. Uh, but yeah, I can imagine how you have have had a lot of a lot of strong feedback. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, obviously, this novel is very gripping in the way that you handle both storylines and the way it unfolds. And we're kind of waiting to see, you know, what's going to happen with Rose, whether she's going to get what she wants. It feels very tightly plotted, which makes me question how much of a planner and a plotter are you? I'm guessing NaNoWriMo might have had some sort of impact on that but tell us are you a are you a plotter I am a plotter yeah um I think I'm my other job is is events coordination and before that working in television I was in production management so I think personality wise I can't just I can't just wing it I need to know what the plan is even if I then ignore the plan um but what I tend to do is Sophia Hanna has this great technique is where you write pitch line and then you expand it to a paragraph, so to say the blurb for the back of the book, and then you expand that into a synopsis. Um, and I did that with, with each of my books. I've kind of gone through that process. And then one thing that was really helpful when I did the, the Faber Academy um, course was about plot points and picking out 15 to 20 major beat points that you want to, to hit across the book. And for me, not only is that useful for kind of keeping the momentum going, it also allows me to see before I start writing it, is there enough here for a book? Because I've had some ideas, but I think that's a great idea. And then I go through this process and think, this is a short story. This is a novella. There's not enough here to expand that into 80,000 words. Um, so then I have my, like I said, 15, 20 beat points that I wanted to hit. So I don't plot out, you know, chapter one, two, three, four, exactly what happens, because I think certainly for me, there has to be some um, development, because when I start writing a draft, I don't really know the characters yet. You know, there are elements of the story that pop out and you're like, oh, I was not expecting that, but I like it. I'm going to keep it. So I like to have a rough structure of where I'm going. Um, and then when I've got the first draft, I write it all out in an Excel spreadsheet because um, spreadsheets are life. And um, I kind of look at like the overall structure of the book and what's missing. And, um, you know, if if some point comes in too early, if there's some information that isn't working. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm I would say I'm like 75 percent plotter, 25 percent pantser. But I also reserve the right to ignore my 
plan, just in case. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Tell us a little bit more then about your general like writing routine. How do you fit writing in around your life and your day job? Um, I have to be quite disciplined because, as you said, I've, I've got a, a job where I work as the events coordinator for the Cambridge Literary Festival. Um, and I have two children who are in primary school. So time is um, key. So I work part time for the festival. So I have a certain number of days where um, I work for them and a certain number of days where I write. And that changes throughout the year, depending on, on how busy the festival is or isn't. Um, so I have to be very um, disciplined with my days that are writing days to make sure that I actually write in them and that I don't do the housework and all the chores or um, procrastinate too badly. Um, thankfully, I've always worked quite well to a deadline. So if I have a deadline, um, I, that helps me to get on with it. Uh, but basically, I have to try very hard to protect my writing time. So the school run in the morning, um, set up my desk because I work from the dining table. Um, and then I tend to sort out a bit of admin in the morning to get my brain into kind of writer mode, like send some emails, do some social media. And then I'll open up my work in, in progress, check my notes to see what I need to do and then tend to just dive straight into it, knowing that the first 10 minutes or so is likely to be awful. So I quite often cut the first bit of the day because I haven't quite warmed up to it. And then I tend to write through to lunchtime, stop um, if I'm reading um, an arc or something I tend to do some reading over lunch um, reading uh, Laura Pearson's book that's coming up next month at the moment it's really good um, and uh, then write until it's time to go and get the children from school 
Uh, they're a bit older now, so sometimes if I haven't quite finished by the time I need to go and get them, a number of times I'm like sentence, sentence, oh, I've got to go at three o'clock, and I literally have to stop mid-sentence. Um, I can finish that up um, in the hour or so after school, and then it's kind of into parenting mode and into the evening. So um, I have lots of post-it notes and lots of notes on my phone for bits of information and ideas and notes that come to me when I'm not at my desk. Um, yeah, that tends to be how I structure it. But at the moment, I've got this week off work from the festival to focus on writing because my deadline is imminent for book three. Oh, yes. You need to get on with it. Mm-hmm. What aspect then? I mean, you seem you've like you've got your routine down and you seem kind of very well organised and, and we know you're a planner. What aspect then of writing do you find most challenging and what are your kind of techniques to overcome it when you're having a difficult day? procrastinator <laughs> I still have a postcard that a friend of mine sent me when I was at university that just said why put off why do today things that you can put off until tomorrow yeah um so I have to overcome my own um faffing about basically uh, it's difficult because working from the dining table like I can see here the dishes that I haven't quite tidied and the laundry that needs bringing in so um first I give myself a deadline like you have to be sat down in this seat by this time um, and I'm usually there close, near enough the time that I say I'm going to um, but bribery mainly I have to bribe myself um, to, to sit down so like if you sit down by this point we can do this or you can read another chapter of the book or you know you can have a coffee so yeah I, I bribe myself to stop procrastinating basically that sounds like a good technique sounds like something I need to be honest <laughs> in 2020 you were long listed for the Lucy Cavendish Fiction Prize mm. how did this change things for you was it was it a moment where you find when you thought kind of to yourself I am I am a writer I am good at writing and there's there's something in this yeah yeah that was that was really key because I think it's it's difficult when it's your first book and it's something that you want to do but you just don't know whether that's possible you like is this any good? Am I kidding myself? Like everybody wants to write a book, don't they? What makes me any different? Um, so it, it it was it was really great because what happened was the previous year um, I had gone to the Lucy Cavendish Fiction Festival. They did a, a one day um, festival, and I met with uh, Nell Andrews, who I believe you know, um, <laughs> and she she was really lovely and really encouraging and. Um, I got to meet Sarah Collins and I told her about my book. She made me pitch it to Nell, which was terrifying because I wasn't prepared to pitch it. Like I was still in the very early stages and, and Nell was so lovely um, when I was pitching her but not looking at her. And she kept kind of looking at me and kind of, my face is up here, my face is up here. Um, and she was really encouraging about the idea, said she thought it sounded great and said that she'd, she'd be interested in reading it, um, which gave me... Um, so much encouragement to, to keep going because I'd only got about 20,000 words written at the time. So I entered it into the festival that year because the Lucy Cavendish is for, you don't have to have a finished manuscript. And it didn't get anywhere. Um, partly because now when I look back, once I'd finished the draft, I actually lost like the first 40,000 of the novel because it started in the wrong place. Um, but then I kept writing and writing and getting it finished that year and then entered it um, in 2020 when it was, was long listed. Um, and that was great. It was like having some industry professionals, people who read 
so many books to say yes this book has something was beyond um beyond helpful and I think also when querying agents to be able to say that that you've been long-listed or shortlisted or won a, a competition like Lucy Cavendish it just gives your your query a little lift um it kind of says to to them yes I'm serious about this other people think that there is something here too so I'd say it was key and also the Lucy Cavendish Fiction Prize is a lovely community lovely people that run it great previous authors it's like a, a little club that I'm very very happy and grateful to be part of. Mm. So tell us then how it went from that to you getting an agent and your book deal. Well, 2020 was an interesting year, as I'm sure we all remember. Um, I had finished the book um, in the December of 2019 and 2020 was going to be the year that I queried and it was going to be great. And I'd got a place on the favour course and my youngest started school. And I was going to have all this time for writing and querying. And I had started the query process with, with a small handful of agents who I had researched and looked at the kind of um, people they represent and the kind of books that they um, that they sell um, and was ready to kind of keep doing that throughout the year. I remember Will Dean's advice that you should aim for 100, 100 rejections at the aim. Um, so I was prepared to, to be in it for the long haul. And then, of course, lockdown happened and I had both my children at home and homeschooling in the morning, Faber course in the afternoon and trying to query in the evening. So it was a bit less all the time in the world than I had planned. Um, so I didn't actually get very far in terms of querying lots of agents. I think I sent it out to nine total in the end. And then um, I got five or six full requests from that. And then. Um, my now agent uh, offered uh, Marianne Gunn O'Connor offered to work with me on the script, on the manuscript. She said, I like it. It's not quite ready yet because it, it kind of sat across two genres at that stage. And it wasn't quite sure where it would sit in the market because it is psychological thriller, but it's also domestic noir and it's also family drama. We worked together to bring it more into one of those um, genres. Um, and the chance to work with my agent was was fantastic so we did that um we went through a couple of rounds of edits and then she said right I would like to sign you and of course I said yes I would love to because she's great <laughs> well, so actually yeah I was aiming for 100 but didn't get very far well I mean nine sounds pretty good to me it means you didn't have yeah, to I know. face all those horrible rejections so there we go now your job as uh events coordinator at the Cambridge Literary Festival you must see and meet so many incredible authors and I'm sure you know there are times where you're looking at them thinking um you know I'm an author too and I want to be in that chair but <laughs> what's it been like have you kind of have you absorbed some of that uh literary talent in terms of watching how they answer questions about their book or do you think it's helped you become like a great ambassador for your book and answering questions I mean so far you've done brilliantly but I just want to know what you what you think about um you know your your work and how that relates to you as an author um I think it's been incredibly helpful actually um partly because authors in general are usually lovely lovely supportive kind and generous um I've had some great advice for some from some really big names um who have been really encouraging and supportive in um, talking to me about my work. Um, I remember uh, Colm Tobin saying, you know, just 
you know, keep faith. He said it took him two years for his first book to find a home. He went, there will be a home. Keep at it. I know that there, there will be. And having chats with Rose Tremaine about editing and how important it is to find the right editor for your work. Um, so just knowing that all those overnight successes are generally anything but and talking to people who've built their career over um, many years um, helps kind of counteract that now, 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 new, 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 all things shiny, all things debut, that, that it can feel like the industry um, is only interested in, in new and you have one shot and that's it. But if you look at people who've had really long careers, it, it isn't about just the first novel, um, which I think has been quite reassuring because the debut year, as you know, is is quite an emotionally fraught one because you're new and you don't know what to expect and, and you don't know what you're doing. It's all a bit um, nerve wracking. Um, so talking to, to established authors was really helpful for that. Um, in terms of answering questions, I'd like to think that they helped me uh, learn how to waffle less, although not, I haven't done an interview for a while, so I'm not sure whether I'm doing that today or not. But kind of, yeah, I think watching people do it has helped for sure. Yeah, I think you have an amazing job, I'm sure. There'll be so many people like jealous of your job. You're getting to, you know, rub shoulders with all these amazing writers. I, mean, I will say it doesn't help with the um, imposter. Oh, syndrome. yeah. I can <laughs> you know, there were like Booker Prize winners and uh, Nobel Prize winners. <laughs> and you're like, I've got a book out too. Yeah. Give me something to aim for, Alison. You know, one day, one day. <laughs> it's true. We're all about longevity. All about Absolutely. longevity. And I mean, we have to talk about your, before, you know, I ask you about what you're working on and things next, but. We have to talk about your next book, which is your second book, because you are literally weeks away from not being a debut novelist, from being in your, what is it, sophomore year? I don't know what the, the terminology is, but um, you are about to have your second book out, The Silent Friend. Um, you are published with Boldwood, who, tell me a little bit about them and how they work, because you, I mean, you had quite a, quite a tight deadline. You're working on your third book now. Tell us about Boldwood. Tell us about The Silent Friend. Give us a little insight into how it's all been working. Okay. Well, firstly, Boldwood have been a fantastic publisher to work with. They are very supportive and encouraging. Um, their communication is great. Um, I have really enjoyed the experience so far. Um, they're a lovely bunch of people. Um, they're a relatively new uh, publisher. They've been running going four years now. Um, and they do things slightly differently in that instead of doing a hardback release and then six months to a year later doing a paperback release, um, they release each of their titles in all formats. So um, hardback, paperback, um, large print, audio and ebook simultaneously um, in all English language territory. So the book has gone out, uh, The Cookie Sister is out in the UK, in the US, in Canada and Australia in all of those formats, all on the same day. Um, which means I, I think it just means that readers can choose which format works best for them rather than having to wait for the, it to be available. Um, it's been great because I've had the experience of having um, an audiobook, which has been a lovely experience. Um, Imogen Church was the narrator for The Cuckoo Sister, and I think she did a brilliant job. I listened, I could only listen to like the first page before she had me in tears. I was like, oh, well, you're good. Like, I, I know what this page holds, and you still got me welling up. Um, and yeah, so they've been really lovely. And uh, when I signed with them, the, the draft of The Silent Friend already existed. 
because I can't remember who gave this advice, but it was great advice. And it was just like, when on submission, which is, is like a heightened version of being um, out to query, when your book is being sent out to the publishers and it can get very quiet while people are reading. And particularly over 2020, 2021, when everyone was, everything was kind of backed up and slowed down because of the pandemic and lockdown. It, um, I was on submission for, I think, six months, which felt like forever. Um, and I did the only thing that I could do, which was was write. The only thing that I can control is the writing, really. So I went back and, and drafted um, my next book. So by the time I signed with Boldwood, um, The Silent Friend already existed in draft form, and I had an idea um, for my third book. Um, and so because the Cuckoo Sister was pushed back six months because it was selected for um, an Amazon first reads uh, selection which was great it came out in February of this year uh, the gap between the first and second is squashed a bit because it's ready to go so we're trying to make the most of the momentum um, and get the second book out yeah I mean it's a lot of pressure for you but thank goodness you'd started writing in the submission period because a you'd have been sitting just checking your emails all day every day and uh -huh. giving you something to work on when I guess there's always a there's always a pressure when you know you've got to write another book and particularly in your genre where you're trying to come up with ideas that maybe have a slight twist or a slight edge to them, a kind of psychological suspension edge to them. You've got to come up with all these brilliant ideas, plus you're very aware of your deadlines, but it sounds like you deadlines are helpful for you. But I was wondering whether there's anything kind of in your during your publishing journey then let's say from the moment you signed your contract to to now has there been anything that you found kind of difficult to deal with or that surprised you or challenged you in some way I know we're always kind of offloading when we on our debut group chat about various things that crop up but I was wondering if there's anything about the industry or yourself that's kind of cropped up that maybe has been a bit of a challenge I think for me, I will say, start off with say that Boldwood have been very good about communicating and what's needed when and working with me to make sure that my deadlines for them also fit with the rest of my other commitments. Um, so with both my first editor um, and my second editor, because I've moved editors in between, um, have sat down with me and gone through my diary and I've kind of said, look, festivals are in April and November. I don't exist to you in those months. There's nothing I can do on my book in those months because I barely have time to talk to my family, let alone um, write books. And we try to work out um, deadlines that work um, for the periods that I can focus on writing. But I think across the industry, there is a, a definite thing where it's kind of like silence, nothing, quiet, nothing. Now, 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 nothing, silence, nothing, silence, now, 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 now. And for me, it works fairly well because my other job also works like that. It's a very quiet periods and very busy periods and I can jigsaw them together. That does mean that generally in my life, I'm quite often in a now, 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 swap job, now, 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 swap job, now, 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 now pattern, um, which can be a lot, I've got to admit. Um, and the other thing I found really hard in publishing is everybody's always thrilled all the time. Every, everything's always marvellous and wonderful and it, it, I'm such a cynic that I'm kind of going yeah but really do you really like it are you honestly thrilled uh, because everybody is just always thrilled all the time it makes you wonder what happens when they're not thrilled 
that's social media though isn't it i think that's that is also the 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 balance of needing to be a certain way online and being kind of i, I know everyone i mean i'm pretty sure 99 percent of us particularly authors who are so used to being solitary on their laptops or computers you know just working away and then suddenly you are performing almost this idea of i am the author so i'm going to be thrilled i'm going to be excited i'm going to be overjoyed i'm going to be whatever and actually most of the time i think maybe this is just me maybe you'll relate Alison, because i'm a, a massive cynic as well good things happen and i'm pleased but thrilled excited i, I, I mean yes perhaps but maybe it's the performative side of it and i think that's where social media comes in and, and we're always seeing we're always seeing the good we're always seeing the the highlight reel the you know all the amazing things that are happening when actually if you probably took that aside and spoke to the person behind the social media and said how's it all going they maybe wouldn't be thrilled they maybe wouldn't be excited all the time it's difficult isn't it because there is a whole thing that you don't want to complain and you don't want to come across as ungrateful um the whole my diamond shoes are too tight phenomenon because I mean on one hand it's brilliant I've always wanted to be a writer I've wanted this since I was a child um I'm looking at across me the little all my books on a shelf with all the different formats and I still am a bit like excited about that um but it is difficult and it is it's a very emotionally draining and an emotionally vulnerable thing to do and I hadn't realized quite how emotionally vulnerable that it would make me because in my life I'm very practical I'm very pragmatic um one of my friends when I was working in tv just summed it up as I will get stuff done um I'm so needy as a writer goodness me how annoying <laughs> like is it all right do people really like it oh that reviewer wasn't that cute honestly I mean I I'm so much more emotionally vulnerable as a writer than I thought I would be and I think putting yourself out there particularly the first time you've done it is a really hard process and I'm very grateful for the other writers in the Debbie group for us to be able to say oh I'm not I'm feeling this I'm feeling overwhelmed like I should be excited but I'm terrified or even numb I know a lot of people who around their publication period were just it's just too much like the, the emotions are too high or too low and you end up with numb instead Mm. um talking and about the, talking about the numb thing I remember you know the 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 craze of the kind of unboxing video which seems to be everyone does it you get your books arrive and you unbox which I don't I totally love seeing and it's so nice I remember when my books arrived and I I did I, I filmed it thinking maybe I'll maybe I'll upload it maybe I won't and then I opened the box and I just kind of felt really anticlimactic and it was that thing again of not being able to go oh my god my books aren't they beautiful and you know fair enough people people do feel like that I just felt like oh and they were they were stunning and they were I was so happy but for some reason opening that box I didn't have that wave of excitement and joy I couldn't have done an unboxing video <laughs> I didn't do an unboxing video either and I will say that I think your book is beautiful I think both the, the hard um, back and the paperback covers are gorgeous I love the covers um and it yeah it's a great book um but I did the same thing I was all prepared to do an unboxing video and I think partly the timing and the, the books arrived right when I was really busy with the festival so my brain was kind of partly elsewhere 
but also because of the number of books, because I'd ordered some author copies as well, they came in a big box and then a small package because they didn't all fit in the box. And I stupidly opened the package first. They held up like three. And it just felt a bit like I'd done an Amazon order. You know, I just got three books because I very rare that I managed to order just one book. Um, and I, yeah, there was a definite anti-climax. Like I love my cover. I think Aaron Monday, the designer, has done a great job on it. I'm not entirely sure how they've done it, but it's really hard not to look at the title. They did something with the yellow, not sure what, but it worked. Um, but yeah, there was a real like, why am I not overcome with emotion? Why am I not feeling what everyone says I should be feeling? Um, and then I opened the box um, and I just seeing like that many that I burst into tears. But I don't know whether they were overwhelmed tears or have like, I don't know. So we've heard about The Silent Friend, your next book. You are working on your third. So finally, Alison, please tell us what's next. Tell us about book three and tell us about maybe plans for more. So um, book three, uh, like I said, existed as an idea when I um, assigned a book deal with Baldwood. It's all based on something that happened to my secondary school teacher um, at school. Uh, I can't say too much about that yet because I haven't finished the book yet. So I'm not entirely sure how best to pitch it without giving something away, which is the real problem with this kind of book because it's yeah. really hard to, to outline it without giving away the plot. Um, but clearly it's an idea that the 15-year-old me went, ooh, that's a great story. Well, you told me before we recorded and it's very juicy. That's all I'll say. Yeah, yeah. Like, I loved it. She, it was a brilliant um, teacher. She was one of my favourite English teachers. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I'm about just over halfway, maybe heading towards um, three quarters of that done with the first draft. So it's very messy. And I'm at the point where I'm kind of going, oh, is this any good? I don't know. I hate that book with the writing when you're like, I'm writing this, but I have no idea if it's any good. Mm. Um, but that's OK, because I can make it good in edits, which I now know is, is how I write. So that's fine. Um, see, in previous um, iterations of me, this would be the point that I would quit because I think it's terrible. Like, but it's allowed to be terrible. It's the first draft. That's okay. I've got a post-it note on my um, computer with a quote from the writer Kate Grenville where she just said, get it down, fix it up later. So um, this book will be out early next year and I'm starting to come up with ideas for um, subsequent books. So hopefully uh, there will be more to come. Um, my plan for the summer is to stare into the middle distance and think of a lot of what ifs and what would happen if and if you took this person and put them in that situation. I always thought when I was a child, it was odd that I would run scenarios in my head and have conversations with characters that didn't exist as a way of entertaining myself. And now I realise that I was just a writer, just coming up with ideas and people and scenarios and just having little screenplays inside my head. Um, that now I write down onto a paper. <laughs> yeah, just slightly different. Well, yeah. Alison, good luck with the publication of The Silent Friend and, of course, the continuing success of The Cuckoo Sister and good luck with the writing of book three. I'm sure you'll figure out how to embed that juicy bit of plot. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's been really lovely. Thank you. That was Alison Stockham talking about her psychological suspense novel, The Cuckoo Sister which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, 
you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop, hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.